0: Welcome to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co founder of iRelaunch and your host for today. Today, we welcome Kelly Rogers, Technical Program Director for Biosciences at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, which I will ask her to tell us about shortly. Kelly relaunched her career as a scientist. An area we have not explored enough at iRelaunch, so we are especially excited to have this conversation with Kelly today. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to 321
1: iRelaunch. Hi, Carol. It's exciting to be on here. Well, we're so happy to be able to speak
0: with you about your relaunch and your career as a scientist But before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about NIST, what it does,
1: how many employees, where it's based? Sure. Um, So NIST is um, part of the Department of Commerce. And its mission is to promote U.S. innovation and industrial competitiveness by advancing measurement science, standards, and technologies to enhance economic security and, of course, improve quality of life. So that's our our mission. We're actually located uh, primarily in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Um, We're about 3,700 scientists, engineers, technicians, support, and administrative personnel and about 1,800 of us are associates or guest researchers, and the rest are federal employees.
0: Hmm. Very interesting organization. Is it primarily PhD scientists who are there, or are there people who don't have PhDs?
1: Um, there are quite a few people who are technical staff without PhDs. Um, there are an awful lot of engineers, not necessarily a PhD, um, but, you know, certainly um, the highest credentialing in their uh, field. So on the whole, we're a very technical group at NIST. Um, it's a, an interesting place. If you think about NIST and measurements and standards to enable trade, you um, that's a lot of measurements. We do um, sort of uh, standards and measurements for things as concrete as literal concrete. And then we also do uh, measurements to support um, the development of the internet um, so that we can tell what search engines, for example, uh, are effectively returning uh, quality information. And then I personally work with our biotechnology portfolio to make sure that we can measure um, the, the products of our, of biotechnology so that industry can continue to develop these technologies and compete globally. Can you give
0: us a specific example of a single measurement that you are responsible for?
1: Well, I personally am not in the NIST laboratory programs. I'm a technical program advisor, kind of, um, operate strategically, um, to figure out what portfolio we should be. We're, we're a pretty small organization compared to something like the National Institutes of Health. Um, the National Institutes of Standards is, is, you know, like a, a, a tiny little group of scientists with a very big mission. And um, so we are working on everything, um, the new cell therapies that, are very promising against cancer. I mean, some of these new cellular therapies that have have been approved by the FDA in the last couple of years, they're literally curing uh, folks who have some terminal blood cancers. Um, but the safety of those therapies, how do you measure a living um, cellular therapy? Uh, what kind of dose uh, does it take? So we don't determine that, you know, that's not our job. It's the job of the FDA to look at the safety of that. And it's the job of the product developer to figure out what the dosage should be. But what if you can't actually count the cells themselves? So a dose of cells that is a certain number of cells, that's always going to be an an important measurement. Um, But how do you count? How do you know that you counted them correctly? So that's what NIST does. We're the ones that come up with the underpinning measurements that allow industry to really um, understand their product and and ensure the quality of those products. Um, A lot of people like to think that NIST is that trusted, honest broker that allows both the assessor, the evaluator of a technology, and the product developer of that technology to benchmark the technology. Um, Mm. And it allows different products to compete on the market by having a common vocabulary of measurements. Um, So most of my work is with the biopharmaceutical um, industry. Uh, We have a consortia. i manage that program. And it's all about um, trying to figure out how to help that industry innovate so that those jobs stay inside the United States and support our economy. So
0: you have to be very precise when when you're working at NIST for the end product, correct? Correct. Okay, so it, it sounds like it's all about precision and, the, and measuring lots of different kinds of things okay. and some things that are maybe kind of hard to measure. Right,
1: and for my measurement scientist uh, colleagues who are listening, um, we could wax poetic on the difference between precise and accurate um, in terms of, ah. um, but I don't that, that would be a whole different podcast to go <laughs>
0: Stated naively by the non-scientist <laughs> who does not work at NIST. <laughs> okay. I'm, but I'm glad you made that distinction. Um, all right. So turning to your personal story and your relaunch, uh, you have a bachelor's degree in chemistry and a PhD in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. And you were a senior staff fellow at the National Institutes of Health and a principal research scientist for DuPont Pharmaceuticals. I want to know if you can walk us through, I mean, that that's an amazing career path and educational background. Um, talk to us about what precipitated your career break and then what happened during that career break in terms of wh- whether you stayed connected or if you didn't stay connected to your technical world and if you did, how you did it. Right.
1: Um, so... Like many of us who work in um, the pharmaceutical world or the biopharmaceutical world, there's a series of acquisitions and, um, you know, that the industry is constantly buying and selling and buying and selling. And so in my case, um, we were bought by a larger uh, pharmaceutical company and we were faced with decisions about whether or not we relocated. And um, my husband and I both worked for the same group. And so when we were trying to decide, you know, the, we, we can't keep the status quo, so we need to make some changes, um, what made sense? And he really wanted to return. He was an um, infectious disease specialist who worked on neglected, neglected, sorry, tropical diseases. And um, he really wanted to go back into that more um, kind of public sector Uh, career. And uh, he, he, uh, you know, because of that as his focus, I had to travel a lot. So at the time we had two small children and I was pregnant with my third. And when I started thinking about how to relocate my career, get us all settled um, back in the Maryland area, and then go back to work, I thought, well, you know, it, it will be easier if I Am not working to manage to pull that one off, and then I'll figure mm-hmm. it out. And the reality was that when he would travel, he would leave, you know, sort of on a Friday and be gone through the following weekend because it takes a long time to get to Africa and back. And right meeting. And so when I started figuring out how would I solve that, how would I solve that if I had to travel to, how would I solve that with small children? Um, you know, it, there there seemed to be a lot saying you might just have to contract out raising your children, and I was a little hesitant to do that. Um, at the same time, I had a parent, uh, my mom, actually was came out of her omission uh, remission, sorry for ovarian cancer, and she was a thousand miles away, and of course we were all trying to figure out how to support her, and it. Just seemed like not having a job competing for my time was a good idea. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I initially said, I'm going to stay home, and, you know, my husband and I discussed that and, you know, came to that as a, that's not a bad decision. Um, it was really life-changing <laughs> for, for certain. And, but it just, once I stayed home, we were a little saner. Um, the kids got used to me being home. I got used to thinking of what I offered the world in a different way. And the years just kept going by where it felt like it wasn't time to go back to work yet. Um, so what? You know, that that's sort of how I ended up with you know more than a decade of being home. My youngest child uh, graduated from elementary school, and I was thinking, all right, I I'd been a very active volunteer, um, which is a, a really good way to stay connected with your program management skills. Uh, mm-hmm but you know I built a nice network of uh, folks who are doing all sorts of interesting things I ran a nonprofit that had um, a diversity of stakeholders that um, you know were challenging and um, I I enjoyed it all but I was ready to go back to work um, and then uh, so you know the 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 difficult thing was that the reason I jumped back to work so quickly is that my husband actually died. And, Mm. um, looking at three children who are, you know, suddenly looking at me and saying, mom, what were we, what are we going to do? Um, going back to work seemed like sooner rather than later was a good idea. Um, right. And you know, these, um,
0: situations where the tragic or unexpected um, death or disability of a spouse or partner or divorce in some cases propel people back into the market sooner than they were anticipating and this is certainly a situation where um you had to make this decision and were you afraid i mean because all of a sudden you had this uh, unexpected death early death of your husband and these young kids at home, what what did like what was going through your mind, and how did you sort everything out to figure out what were the first steps you needed to take?
1: Well, i I think you know, um, probably I was pretty numb, so I wasn't scared <laughs> mm-hmm. about the mm-hmm. search. I was scared about you know the whole picture. What what does the future hold, and how do we how do we get where we know we need to go? Um, but I think. Um, and the really valuable thing is in my time off of paid work, um, I had done so much volunteer work and I had earned a reputation as someone who could get things done, someone who could mm-hmm. what the barrier was, um, someone who could find the shared win. And um, some of those people were folks in my community who worked at NIST. None of them were biologists. Um, no, you know, they, they were all working on more physical measurements. Um, but all of them kept saying, Kelly, it's right here in your neighborhood. You should really look at NIST. And um, when I when I was exploring that and, you know, trying to figure out how to dust off my resume, um, you know, how to how to update things and, and present myself through. Um, I did a couple of cold drops where I went on biotech companies' websites and dropped my CV down the, you know, sort of down the work with us pipeline. Right. And, um, I, you know, I, I was really surprised. I got, you know, the HR person reached out to me. And Hmm. I thought, wait, wait a minute, I must be more marketable than I had thought, (laughs) you know, and I I did have faith in myself. I knew I'd always been good at whatever job was in front of me, you know, Mm -hmm. seemed to find a way um, to use the skills that I had and, and figure it out. So I, I was confident in my capabilities. I just wasn't sure how marketable I was. Mm-hmm. after all of those years out. And what I found was that my capabilities were more important than that 14-year gap. And the network of people helping um, helping me get my foot in the door for where I wanted to be, um, that was all really helpful as well. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, if, if I have anything to offer, you know, someone who's in my position, all of those things that you're doing in your community in your career those are job skills and um, you know n- not to sell that short <laughs> so right um, and I right. was also very grateful um, the person that hired me at NIST um, she was uh, very supportive and uh, she looked at it as when I hire a person uh, to come work for me I'm hiring them for what they can do not what they are currently doing. And, um, you know, she rolled the dice and said, join my team at NIST. And, you know, I bump into her now and then, um, you know, she's lovely. She no longer works for NIST because she um, took her own leap of faith, uh, you know, into a non-federal career. Um, But when I bump into her, she said it was a good bet. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, wow um but wait uh, well first of all
0: let me just tell our listeners who are just tuning in that you're listening to 321 i relaunch and this is your host Carol Fishman Cohen i'm speaking with Kelly Rogers a phd scientist who relaunched after a 14 year career break Kelly, um, can you just dive in a little deeper to exactly what happened? Um, Because I'm thinking, here you are with this very uh, technical PhD, but you had been out for a long period of time, So, but you're still getting some pretty positive feedback to your resume. Were you thinking at all yourself, I need to somehow refresh my skills and get back into it and, and learn what the latest thinking is in my field? Or were you somehow keeping up? Uh, when, when you were on career break?
1: Sure. And, you know, it is funny that if you're in a highly technical field, then there's the assumption that that highly technical field moves forward. And it it certainly did, you know, biotechnology, um, you know, is in this rapid pace of development. Um, So some of it, I actively looked at for staying connected. You know, I love science. I didn't want to lose that connection with science, especially if you're, you know, now all of a sudden a mother in charge of three kids, the science is a wonderful break from some. Yeah. Um. So I did actively make sure that I was reading science magazine, you know, that I and uh, my favorite section of the newspaper is this, you know, the the science news that comes out on I think it's health and science on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm So, you know, if you think about the disruptive technology that comes out, it's hard to miss that. You know, if you're at all aware of the world, those are stories on the news. Those are stories on the newspaper. So following that chain, following that thread and and going and seeking more information, um, you know, I, I sort of naturally did that. And then I actively did that. Um, so there was that. But then I, I think the other thing, and, and some of my colleagues are surprised by this, um, when you look at scientific research, and you say, how much does it change? What's the pace of the change? And Mm -hmm. how would you keep up with all of that? Because of course, as scientists, we read all the time. We read constantly. So if you weren't reading constantly, then how do you keep up? Well, the magic is that every few years, there's been so much new research that somebody writes a review on it. Um, And so if you really think about being out for a decade, that's, that's pretty much four or five review papers on, Mm. you know, that are all building on each other. Um, So it's, I, I, of course, it's difficult. I don't mean to minimize the difficulty, but um, the same skill set, that made you a good scientist before makes you a good scientist now. Plus, you know, Google is a whole lot better than it was when I first stepped out of the course.
0: <laughs> you know, this is a very important theme. So we hear, for example, um, a PhD in multivariate statistics said the fundamentals of multivariate statistics are still the same. Some of the uh, tools that we use to interpret the results have changed. Or we'll, uh, we have a process engineer who we launched through one of our um, technical return to work programs that we work on with the Society of Women Engineers, uh, actually at uh, Northrop Grumman. And she said, she was out for 19 years and she said, you know, the fundamental problems are still the same. Some of the technical tools have changed, but the the problems that we're dealing with are still the same, and that was comforting. So it's really interesting to hear you reinforce that message that we're hearing from people who are in technical fields. Absolutely. Um, so you you read four to five review papers of uh, that were out, published periodically, sort of catching up on the the big changes that had occurred over a several year period. And that was a piece of your staying updated, you're saying.
1: Right. And I, you know, I think that one of the other things is I had been out of the workforce for so long that I didn't really expect to go back in doing the same thing that I was doing when I stepped out. And, you know, but I was okay with that. I, again, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have expected that had I stayed in that job, that it would have been the same for 14 years anyway. Um, you know, so I think. Again, I I did trust myself that I would be okay if I could use my brain, my scientific researcher skills, as a critical thinker with the tools available, as long as someone gave me the chance and a little bit of patience um, while I figured it out. And I was fortunate enough that both of those things were given to me. <laughs> so. so this was someone, maybe a friend of a
0: friend or someone who you knew and you had recommendations from people who knew you who worked at NIST. And your first job back was as a biosciences program advisor. Correct. So is that what happened? It was like through contacts and people who knew who you were?
1: It really was. It was It was actually, I'm, I'm lucky enough, I have a good friend that um, has worked at NIST and had a fantastic career and actually has a Nobel Prize to show for it. Wow. And, um, you know, so his NIST colleagues tend to listen when he said, you know, I've got someone you should talk to hmm. And, you know, make it very clear. It was it was I've got someone that you should talk to. And then everything else was up to me, you know, to make yes. sure that my value was apparent. But I appreciated that because, um, you know, this person's, you know, this friend of mine is is technical skills or don't overlap mine. Um, you know, I'm a biologist. That's physics. But he saw me in action in my volunteer work um, and knew that I had really good critical thinking skills and that I was good at articulating uh, complex problems uh, for the audience that was in front of me, in many cases, children. Um, So we had worked together in settings where my scientific background mattered. um, But it was more that I could figure out a strategy to communicate effectively to people, and I could think through problems. Um, so, you know, he used his um, reputation, I'm sure, to say, I, I know someone that that I think would be an excellent hire at NIST. Um, when I first came in, it was really, um, there had been someone in that position who had passed away, unfortunately, a few years before, and they had never filled the position because they were really looking for the right person. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was lucky that that there was an opportunity that was there. Um, and I was lucky that it was a pretty flexible opportunity to say, this is the challenge that we have. Um, how are you going to approach it? Um, And that wasn't prescribed. It was bring the skills that you have, figure out how to approach it in the way that makes sense uh, for you. It wasn't come in and do this exactly like, you know, someone else has done it. Um, So with that, that amount of freedom, I, I spent a lot of time asking questions, learning the NIST portfolio, um, trying to figure out where the barriers were um, and, uh, you know, really getting to know NIST and figure out how to bring the value of NIST outside so that other people could see the excellent science that's being done. Um, and that was really my, my first job, is articulating the value of the NIST program um, to scientists who might not be that connected with NIST, and also link what was going on at NIST up with other federal agencies, build kind of an awareness across the federal government about programs that, um, you know, that the, the different federal scientists could leverage um, if, if we only knew about them in a more coordinated way. So that was really, you know, sort of where I started. And then, you know, what happened after that was sort of a more logical outflow of that.
0: Wow. Well, it's pretty amazing and it also makes me think I had a similar experience where a senior person said, "Why don't you come in and talk to a few people?" And and that that was an entree for me to then have conversations that ultimately led to a job opportunity. I hope our listeners are paying attention to what Kelly is saying about how her key contact worked with her as a volunteer and saw her skills as a volunteer and realized also with her I guess, with your academic background that it would that that combination would translate into being an effective person at NIST. So the idea that you meet people in your volunteer work that can have an impact on your relaunch is illustrated right here with with Kelly's example. Um, Kelly, after you were back for a couple of years, you got a big promotion Uh, to technical program director for biosciences for NIST. And it seems like you were completely back and functioning at this very high level for a promotion like this to happen. Can you talk about that? Uh, Like, were you surprised at how quickly you were back on your feet and in the middle of this uh, working with PhDs and in a scientific research environment And were you feeling comfortable right away or did it take some time?
1: Oh, I, you know, quite honestly, I think anytime you feel comfortable at work, then you should start looking to (laughs) challenge yourself. So I haven't been, um, I don't think I've, I've stayed in a position long enough to be comfortable here. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I, I do feel that, um, you know, I, I had some luck of timing and some of the, that luck you create yourself as opportunity. And, um, you know, the way the federal government works, sometimes there's a, a shift in the winds and a new direction and, and someplace that, um, you know, your organization wants to go, your agency wants to go and they need people to drop what they're doing and, and, you know, sort of make that opportunity happen. And, you I was lucky enough that the project that I, I currently um, am most closely related to, and, and work with, that was something that was sort of a, an idea in someone's head, and uh, the funding might happen for that, and so I could work with my NIST colleagues to come up with let's get prepared for that, let's figure out what it would take, how you know who are the stakeholders that we need to talk to and you know, what would this look like if we actually got funding for it? And it turns out that we got funding. And so um, my promotion was largely because um, once we had sort of set this thing up, somebody had to be a program manager for it. And that is a lot of moving pieces that are, um, at NIST we say, are you internally focused or externally focused? And I spend a lot of time externally focused and then trying to connect back up, you know, inside NIST. So I am surprised, you know, that, well, I, I'm surprised that the opportunity was so good that was in front of me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I it, it feels like I was kind of, um, I don't want to say born to, to do this particular thing, but I naturally kind of gravitate towards Opportunities like that to work with other people and figure out what the shared win is and develop a, a business case for why we should do that. Um, so that part felt pretty natural, I would say, um, even though I was still, I, I would say I was still overwhelmed. And a lot of days I'm still overwhelmed, but that's mm-hmm. part of, you know, I think part of um, being a professional.
0: You know, I'm just curious about your reaction to this. Um, I remember, gosh, it was probably almost 10 years ago, I spoke to the Harvard Medical School clinical and academic research communities. And I remember them saying, if you're away from scientific research for even six months, you're toast. (laughs) And I'm just wondering, what is your reaction to that? And have you seen examples that
1: would counteract that? I think that's a really interesting attitude and and i I can understand why why people say that if you work on the cutting edge of science the cutting edge is is moving all the time i mm-hmm. six months i mean for pete's sake that would be that's really when I think about uh women and the careers of women that's uh, I'm not comfortable with the six months right <laughs> at right. all um i also think that perhaps the sentiment behind that is um, anyone who's not hungry enough to stay with it doesn't belong in the game. There's mm. a little bit of a bias, I think, that's mm-hmm. associated with that, and I and you know, mm-hmm. I'd like to push back against that. Um, some really creative ideas have come from people who were not entrenched. Um, in what the prevailing wisdom was. And I also think that it can take a very long time to push a scientific innovation forward. And, you know, 14 years is a very long time. If you stuck me back in the lab and gave me pipettes, um, I'm sure that the rust would show, but scientists in general are creative and flexible thinkers. If they're good scientists and I, I would hope that um, the scientific community would understand that that distance can also be a gift, a gift of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I, I had some colleagues um, that when I came back and I would, I would get so excited about science. I mean, it was such a joy to be back with scientific problems in front of me. Um, and they would say, you seem so enthusiastic, right? And I would say, well, think of it. I've had a 14 year sabbatical, <laughs> you know? Right. That's a gift.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, we have heard this consistently from employers across all industry sectors that relaunchers are so excited to be back at work. We really do bring an enthusiasm that other people notice. And it is precisely because we've been away from the workforce.
1: Absolutely. I, I think, you know, that obviously, you know, not every skill is as sharp as it used to be, perhaps. But it's like riding a bike it doesn't take very long to pick a, pick that back up.
0: Right. And your comments are so thoughtful about um, this idea of being away from scientific research can actually sometimes be a gift and give you this different perspective. You know, we are aware that the National Institutes of Health has been running a scientific research return to work grant program since 1992. Uh, the Daphne Jackson Foundation in the UK has been running return to work fellowships since 1985 in scientific research in industry and in academia. And we have numerous success stories uh, out of those programs and and outside of those programs of people who have been in scientific research careers who have resumed them to great success. And they're back on the tenure track or they're back in the middle of uh, fundamental academic scientific research or industry research after long career breaks. So we definitely know it can be done and hearing your perspective about this even bigger idea that it can actually be a, a, an advantage and give this other perspective. I I'm, I'm so glad you expressed that. Um, and as, as part of our
1: conversation. Absolutely. Um. So
0: Kelly, uh, we're running out of time now and I want to wrap up by asking you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already
1: talked about today? I think I would um, just emphasize that when someone who is a professional is not in the workforce, um, you know, we are all doing something with that time. We're probably giving back to our communities. We are managing complex problems, everything else. Those are job skills. And the people that we're interacting with are watching us. They are, they become our network of um, our, our community when we want to go back to work and, I think that for every person who is wondering, am I marketable? Are my skills marketable? The answer is, have a little faith. (laughs) I love that.
0: That's great advice. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure entirely. Uh, Before
0: we say goodbye, can you tell us
1: how can people find out more about NIST? Well, the easiest place to find out about NIST is um, to go to nist.gov. And um, that's our website where you can find all about us. And since we are a federal agency, we're pretty transparent. Excellent. Well,
0: I hope our listeners check that out. Thanks for listening to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host, For more information on iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.